This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Last week, we talked about one of the clear markers of identity in Jesus and in each of us. We talked about the naming of Jesus. At the same time Jesus is circumcised, he's marked as a Jewish person. And then weeks later, he's presented in the temple at the purification that his mother and father had to undergo according to the law to re-enter the temple after childbirth. So you see all the markers of a human being coming into play right away. Our names mark us and connect us to the family. Our souls and bodies are one. And so the Jewish religion and following it, the Christians take our bodies very seriously, marking us and purifying us. Our bodies, our families, our religion, and what we believe about God or reject about him all identify who we are. The circumcision and naming would have come eight days after his birth. The presentation of the temple would have come 40 days after his birth. And as the Gospel of Luke tells us, quote, And when the time for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph are faithful Jews. And being a faithful Jew, when God gives something to you, you owe something back to God. So they gave the first fruits of their crops, the first fruits of their flocks, all went back to God, and the first fruits of their families. This reverses what Lucifer and the angels did in taking their gifts and keeping them for themselves. It's symbolic of what Abraham did, taking his son and offering him back. And it is indeed what God the Father will do with Jesus. So if you can picture the scene, Mary and Joseph would have gone up to Jerusalem from Bethlehem, which is about five to six miles, a walk that would take about two hours, probably less, depending on what the roads were like. If they approached from the southwestern corner, they would have seen what ancient Jewish sources describe, according to Brant Petrie. He quotes, At the southwestern corner of the altar were two holes, like two narrow nostrils, by which the blood that was poured over the western base and the southern base used to run down and mingle in the water channel and flow into the brook Kidron. So according to these ancient sources, You literally saw blood and water flowing out of the temple as you approached at certain times of the year. So Joseph and Mary would have taken the child Jesus there to the temple and pushed through the crowd. I think of it as somewhere between a well checkup for your baby in the DMV. You're taking your child to a particular ceremony designed for your child, uh, but it's also a ceremony that's part of the bureaucracy of Judaism at the time. I like the way St. John Henry Newman sets the scene. As he describes it, quote, A little child is brought to the temple, as all firstborn children were brought. There is nothing here uncommon or striking so far. His parents are with him, poor people, bringing the offering of pigeons or doves for the purification of the mother. 
They are met in the temple by an old man who takes the child in his arms, offers a thanksgiving to God, and blesses the parents, and next are joined by a woman of great age, a widow of 84 years, who had exceeded the time of useful service and seemed to be but a fit prey for death. She gives thanks also and speaks concerning the child to other persons who are present. Then all retire. We know what the world thinks of such a group as I have described. The weak and helpless, whether from age or infancy, the world looks upon negligently and passes by. This is how it goes with God. In some explanations of Moses and the burning bush, a number of shepherds pass by, but only Moses has the encounter with God. In this tale, a number of people are passing through the temple, but only Simeon and Anna stop Joseph and Mary. So right away, we see Mary and Joseph embracing organized religion, and we will later see their son embracing it too. If that seems strange, it shouldn't. As Purdue anthropologist Peter Peregrine told PBS recently, there are no societies that are a-religious. Belief in the supernatural, in a spiritual world, is a fundamental human feature. It's part of the human condition. This is the case because, just like me, people throughout time have felt that they are caught in a maze here on earth. They long to know how to get through the confusing twists and turns, and they would need to know that they're not random, that there's something more, that there's a way up and out. They have often looked to strange answers, and that's what's happening today. In her book, Strange Rights, Tara Isabella Burton argues that today, people hunger for the same things human beings have always longed for, a sense of meaning in the world, and a personal purpose within that meaning, a community to share that experience with, and rituals to bring the power of that experience into achievable everyday life. But they're doing it differently, she said. A recent Atlantic article asked, why are so many millennials into astrology? And MTV reported that a third of Gen Z chooses who to date based on astrology. Witchcraft and astrology are no longer ancient superstitions. Now they're 21st century trends among the elite. Everyone is saying, I know I am something more, and I long to find out who I am and what my place in the universe is. Ultimately, the question isn't, should I put my faith in religion or not? It's, what religion should I put my faith in? I tell my kids that, like it or not, they're going to have a religion, so they might as well embrace Catholicism, because when they die and go to heaven, it's Jesus who they will meet, and they want to be part of his religion. At any rate, religion is one of the first archaeological answers to the question, what makes us human? Eastern Orthodox Bishop Callistos Ware said, the human animal is best described not as a logical or tool-making animal or an animal that laughs, but rather an animal that prays, a Eucharistic animal capable of offering the world back to God in thanksgiving and intercession, end quote. Adam and Eve, the first couple, were given a relationship with God that separated them from other creatures. They lost that relationship and have been trying to reestablish it ever since. Animal sacrifices in the temple, like those Mary and Joseph provided for Jesus' presentation, were followed today by our Eucharistic celebration of Jesus' sacrifice. But let's take a brief look at history to understand how this works. I had a crisis of faith a few years ago more recent than the crisis of faith that I speak about in the introduction to this podcast, when I suddenly realized that 
we have evidence of intelligent, civilized mankind long before we have any evidence of a writing or of worship of the one true God. Consider how long human beings lived without the written word. Wheaton College literature scholar Michael Drought points out that if all of human history were a calendar year, with the human beings appearing January 1 and today being midnight on the 31st of December, the entire history of written literature would have started on December 30th. Everything else, all 363 days, would be unwritten oral culture. Well, think about what that means. Almost all of human history happened before the Ten Commandments were given to us. So, I wondered, what was this supposedly loving and attentive God doing with people for all that time? Why did he wait until the very end of human history to reveal himself? What about all those other people he made and created? Why didn't he give them some indication of his presence? Well, of course, the first answer to the problem is that God is playing a much longer game and different game from what we give him credit for. Tim, a thousand years are as a day and vice versa, and he has always been speaking to us through beauty, truth, and goodness through creation itself. They show that he's an artist, that he's a genius, and that he's a lover. God doesn't hide from mankind. He reveals himself in the world. There's a whole catechism chapter. It sort of starts at paragraph number 26 that explains exactly how this works. But I like how St. Augustine put it. He said, question the order of the stars, the sun whose brightness lights the day, the moon whose splendor softens the gloom of night. Question the living creatures that move in the water, that roam upon the earth, that fly through the air. Question all these, they will answer you. Behold and see, we are beautiful. Their beauty is their confession of God. So the created world actually points outside of itself, outside the maze, to something greater. But God also planted in our hearts the desire to seek him out, and we have done so from the beginning. This is exactly what psychologist Matt Rossano at the Southeastern Louisiana University says, but from the point of view of his research into the origins of man. What is the difference between human beings and animals? Rossano has been sharing exciting evidence from anthropology that shows that from our earliest days, what has distinguished us from other animals is ritual. You see it especially in evidence of costly and expensive attention given to the burial of the dead, ritual activity deep in caves, and finds like two recent discoveries. One is Jordan's massive Wadi Fainan amphitheater, and the other is this elaborate Gobekli Tepe temple. These are two remarkable places of ancient ritual and worship. The structures are over 11,000 years old, but the problem is human beings lived in small nomadic bands of hunter-gatherers 11,000 years ago, from what we can tell. We didn't learn to farm and keep livestock until 10,000 years later. So how did hunter-gatherers who had never settled down complete these massive undertakings of Wadi Fainan that required scores of laborers organized, fed, focused, and kept safe through the duration of this project, and this intricate temple, the Gobekli Tepe. It used to be thought that a stable food source came first, and then people could afford to indulge their religious curiosity. Not so, they say these two finds. People gathered to sacrifice, worship, and petition God together, 
and civilization followed. Rossano says, quote, it now seems that it was not the settling force of agriculture, but the organizing force of ritual and religion that put an end to our hunter-gathering days. The recent book, Survival of the Friendliest, points to the extraordinary evidence that species and animals within species gain far more success from being cooperative and friendly than by being strong and dominant and aggressive. Scientists have been saying for a while that the human ability to cooperate is what made us the dominant species on Earth. But now it seems that our religious impulse is at the heart of our earliest examples of human cooperation. Only after we learned to worship together did we trade goods and govern ourselves in a group. So just to be clear here, what I'm saying is that organized religion is prior to and more important than agriculture and villages and the development of civilization. Or to put it another way, the church is older than the market and the state, and the church gave rise to the city and the state in history. In fact, to this day, as Tim Carney points out in his book, Alienated America, it is mostly communities with a shared relationship to organized religion that create bonds between people. American communities are falling apart, except for those that are very rich and those that are very religious. So mankind was shaped by a religious impulse, making God's interaction with us not something that started with the Ten Commandments, but which was there all along. But I still have a faith doubt here. Rosano and others usually describe some shamanistic form of religion that's happening deep in these caves, makes me wonder how can Christians believe in a loving God who shaped Adam and Eve and gave them a religious impulse and wanted the best for them in their progeny, but then abandoned them to strange rites that led nowhere? Why did he wait so long to reveal the truth to people? Well, the fathers of the church have one important answer to this that I've discovered recently. It's in a great book by 20th century French Cardinal Jean Danelou, which traces the angels and their mission according to the fathers of the church. Yes, the Jewish people received God's singular revelation in scripture, but this does not mean that other people living before the coming of Christ were completely deprived of divine assistance and excluded from the whole process of preparation, writes Danelou. He says that for many of the fathers of the church, quote, whatever part of truth was known to the pagan peoples and was later to be recognized and taken up by Christianity, the wisdom of Roman law, the philosophical truths arrived at by Plato and Aristotle, all this came to them from the provenance of the one God acting through the ministry of the angels. Remarkably, says Danelu, Origen of Alexandria said that this even applies to the secret and occult philosophy of the Egyptians and the astrology of the Chaldeans, and even the Hindu claims pertaining to the science of the Most High God. Now, if all this talk of angels sounds like an easy out, like a deus ex machina or an angel ex machina solution to solve a problem, I should add that the fathers of the church cite some very telling scriptural passages that speak of angels in exactly this way. Kind of remarkable, actually. And if this seems like a bizarre answer from the days when human beings gullibly believed in angels, I would point out that national angels have been in the news quite a lot recently. A couple of years ago, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of Fatima, one of the best attested apparitions of all times, which ended with a miracle of the sun that even atheistic skeptics verified. Well, those apparitions began 
with an angel appearing to three shepherd children and calling himself the angel of Portugal. Uh, John Paul II has taught on a couple different occasions that there are such things as national angels. And then in 2022, when the Russians invaded the Ukraine, visions of angels were seen all over the Ukraine and identified by the leading patriarch there as angels guarding the nation. So angels have a long pedigree and a recent pedigree as well. So as the 5th century church father Pseudo-Dionysius put it, the universal providence of the one most high God has for the salvation of all the nations entrusted them to angels who are to lead them toward God. So God was with his people all along, even before scripture. We even see evidence in the Bible that the one true God was giving people true religion before the Jewish religion came along. Abraham meets a priest who calls himself Melchizedek, or a king of righteousness. And he makes an offering for Abraham. So this Melchizedek character is much revered throughout the Bible. He's praised in the Psalms and later in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. But there's just one problem. The first priests sanctioned by God in the Bible happened more than 700 years after Melchizedek, after Abraham, while Moses and the Hebrew people were fleeing Egypt. So whatever else Melchizedek is, he is a sign that some semblance of true religion, the kind of religion that leads us to the one true God, was there before Abraham and Moses, according to the Bible itself. But of course, the fullness of this revelation was given to the Jews, and their high holy place of worship was their temple. So the tale of salvation history since Adam and Eve, as I said, is the tale of two estranged lovers longing to get back together. That is what mankind is doing with all these primitive religious expressions. And that's what God is doing by allowing us to reach him even through these primitive religious expressions. The temple had very primitive beginnings. In Exodus, it's described as this kind of tent that Moses carries and has to be organized in a particular way. Solomon built a massive temple according to very strict rules that was filled with the riches that are described in great detail in Second Chronicles. God graced this temple with his glory also, lighting it up with this cloud of glory. But when the Jews turned away from God one too many times, God finally fulfilled a threat that had been there from the beginning, that he would abandon them if they kept turning away. And the prophet Ezekiel describes this glory of God leaving the temple. And he also describes that one day it'll come back. So the Jewish people long to see their temple, and by extension their people, restored to its former glory. This is exactly what happened when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple. There in the temple they encountered two figures who represent the freedom that can be found in organized religion. Freedom isn't doing whatever I want, Anyone who does that will soon find that their appetites are forcing them to do all sorts of things that they don't want. Freedom means doing what best delivers your final happiness as a human being. And your final happiness as a human being whose soul was created to interact with God is found nowhere in this maze that we're stuck in. It's found in our ability to communicate with God. So final happiness is to realize that you're in a theodrama God's story and embrace him there. Simeon is a man who knew he was in God's story. Quote, it had been promised to him that he would not see death before he saw God's anointed, says the Gospel of Luke. 
The gospel praises him more significantly than anybody else besides Mary and maybe John the Baptist. Three verses in a row associate him with the Holy Spirit. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then he came in the Spirit into the temple. So this is a man filled with the Holy Spirit, with revelations from the Holy Spirit, walking with the Holy Spirit. This is a truly free man. And he's been predicting the consolation of Israel. Perhaps he expected the glory that had left the temple to return. Certainly he was expecting the Lord's anointed to come. Well, he was free enough to notice it when it happened. It was just a typical day in the temple with people coming and going, some with babies, some for other purposes. But Simeon sees immediately how special Jesus and Mary were. Simeon is not a priest. They didn't approach him with Jesus. He sees them and embraces Jesus himself. He takes Jesus in his arms and blesses God and says, Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your words have been fulfilled. My own eyes have seen the salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Then he turns to the startled father and mother and tells Mary, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that thoughts of, out of many hearts will be revealed. End quote. So this is a great storytelling flourish that also happens to be true. I talked about some of the principles of drama, and Simeon is definitely following them. He's setting expectations. He's making his entrance count. He's playing to the back row while giving the high-dollar customer plenty to think about. He's also employed a dramatic principle that I forgot to mention. This is another one my mother taught me. Always leave them wanting more. Never overstay your welcome. Well, he left them wanting more and us wanting to hear more about exactly what this means. We want to know what the light of the revelation to the Gentiles will be. Next, we hear from another very free person. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years, then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, end quote. If she doesn't seem free to you, you have to understand what freedom truly is. She's free of the constraints of time, free from the painful life a widow would typically have. She's free of her appetites. She controls them with fasting rather than them controlling her and free to love God authentically without worrying what anyone else thought. I've imagined her many ways over the years. I personally think she was a woman who was looking for answers after the difficulties of her life and who suddenly seeing Mary and Joseph and the child found exactly what she was looking for. We also find what we are looking for when we enter the temple, a Catholic church with a tabernacle in which is housed Jesus Christ himself, truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. I had exactly the experience that Simeon and Anna must have had, maybe to a lesser degree, when I walked into the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. decades ago. I had left my family. I was going to be looking for a job in Washington. I was far from home. And when I walked into that church, it felt like I was walking into my mother's living room. 
and the people there all felt like my brothers and sisters. This is what happens through organized religion when Catholics visit churches all over the world and suddenly feel at home in a strange country. This is what it felt like for Joseph and Mary and Jesus, the Holy Family, to meet these two people who had no families. Simeon didn't have a family. Anna had lost her family. On the Feast of the Presentation, we celebrate consecrated and religious to this day, and this is exactly why. The consecrated celibate life of Simeon and Anna witness to our hope that there's something more to life than what the earth offers. But more on that next week, as we continue to see where we fit in Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.